Filmmakers, it's time to use Soldo. Soldo is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees and production assistants when in prep, on set or in post-production. Soldo is a multi-user expense account that helps you control business spending. You can give Soldo cards to some or every employee, to entire teams or even contractors instantly. Transfer funds to all card holders and you can use Soldo for free for three months with the code FilmmakersPod. Soldo.com. Listen for more info in today's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. The Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 277 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. from indie film to studio films to TV and everything, everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up. In a very, very humble opinion, I am Giles Alderson, and joining me today is Matthew Butler Hart and Tori Butler Hart. Hello. Hello, hello Giles. Giles. And hello, everyone. Thanks for having us back. An absolute pleasure to have you back. And we are back together because we have on the legend. That is Stephen Fry. And he was brought to us because you know Stephen Fry. You are acquainted with him. He's also in your amazing book, Full to the Brim, with fizz, comma, ginger, comma, and fierce determination. It is out now in all good and evil news agents and stores and bookshops. Did you say good and evil? Yes, I did. Bookshops. Yes. Some of them are evil. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's an empire thing. It's a thing, is it? Oh, okay. And he was involved in your amazing film, Two Down. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he, he basically was, one of was our, our, our main executive well, one of yeah. our executive producers yeah which is which is great I mean you know you just sort of send in the script lovely and that was basically it and he notes oh lovely fantastic that's the kind of producer you that's want, the producer you want yeah, well, exactly money money producer, money producer. Yeah. great yeah. so yeah, we've yeah. got Stephen Fry on who's obviously ridiculously well known I do introduce him at the start of the podcast but let's name some of his amazing credits shall we I mean f from an acting point of view sure well for me Blackadder. We didn't. Even, we don't even talk about Blackadder. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I mean, yeah. And well, he, as as it's you'll find out, much. he's just he's, yeah. his brain is just so full of amazing things. Yeah, we had so many questions, didn't we, that we wanted to ask him? Yeah, yeah. Pages, pages and, pages. and pages of notes that we'd both done, and he just goes on this wonderful intellectual journey about filmmaking yeah. and uh, his world within it. You can listen to him for hours, and many people have because he's narrated so many uh, amazing audiobooks. Great link there, wasn't it? Including the Harry Potter franchise, um, but he's also known Known for Gospel Park, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yes. The Hobbit, Jeeves and Worcester, a bit of Fry and Laurie, Gospel Park, Viva Vendetta, Charlotte Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Do you know what I mean? Incredible. He's Golden Globe nominated yeah. for yeah. Wild. We didn't even talk about that. I know. We didn't talk about even Wild. Talk about the part that was oh. made for him. Oscar Wilde and he's fantastic. and and he was, he, he was even sitting in the background there's a little picture of Oscar yeah. Wilde I've got an Oscar Wilde book behind me he didn't even comment on and Stephen oh. Fry's book for me was behind me as well uh, but why would he and why should he he's a living legend and we talked deep into mental health in filmmaking we talked about what it's like on set directing why he hasn't necessarily directed again his love of writing and yeah. acting I mean gosh yeah. what what is not to love about this so much so disappointed when he went I should get to my other meeting <laughs> with like no oh, oh really like, really yeah. people love you Stephen he's also in uh, TV shows at the moment Masters of the Universe The Dropout uh, Sex Education so he's he's yeah. he's like I say, an icon, mm -hmm. living legend. It's a sin as well, isn't it? He's in a that? busy man. Um, Got a new mm -hmm. Netflix show, The Sandman, coming out yeah. soon, which looks awesome. And also, what he, one of his books, 
is... Yeah, they turn, which we didn't even talk about, like one of his which, books, The, the Liar. Yeah. So, so much we didn't talk about, but we have mentioned it here, so you do know about it now, and just know that he's an amazing guy. We will put links to everything we can in the show notes so you can go get them, uh, including Matt and Tori's amazing book, Full to the Brim, with Fizz, Ginger and Fizz Determination. <laughs> long title. <laughs> which is amazing. Some amazing people feature in this book. Stephen Fry, Ian McKellen. Hey! <laughs> Same joke every time, but it's worth it. So listen, the Cannes Film Festival is starting this week. And myself, Tori and Matt, we're going to be there, aren't we? Yeah. And we have written up a blog for you, How to Survive and Thrive in Cannes, with so many do's and don'ts. And we've asked some of our hosts and some of our previous guests uh, to contribute to that blog. Link to that is in the show notes. But here's some tidbits from it. Carry sun cream, so important. A phone charger, an umbrella, and a spare shirt in your bag. And make sure you have a pen and paper with you at all times. And after you've met someone, someone cool, you've exchanged business cards, because make sure you've got them, write a little note about what that discussion was. Because when you get home a week later, you'll have 60 to 200 business cards. Believe me, you will. And you won't remember Larry from Barry or Sue from Rue. You won't. Uh, so if you write a little note, and that's what you can lead with, in your email to them a week after the festival. There are so many more tips and tricks, like wear good shoes. Uh, so many important things like that. We will see you out there. Do come and introduce yourselves. We'd love that. So if you're going out there just to meet people, brilliant. Be brave. Introduce yourself. Ask them about them. Hopefully you've researched them beforehand, even if it's looking them up on IMDb or looking at Sinando account or asking someone else who they are and quicker Googling, because then you've got a reason to go up and talk to them and to ask them about their projects and about their films and hopefully the conversation will come back around to you if you're going there with a project again do the same thing and eventually you will talk about your projects but above all enjoy yourselves and i will do a live intro from there next week so i'll tell you all about how we're getting on with selling three-day millionaire and food for thought documentary and i'll see the teaser trailers for wolves of war and the stranger in our bed which will be in the market how excited. Huge shout out to some of our latest Patreon supporters. Uh, Lee Hutchins, Lynn Coleman, Dean, uh, Jason McColgan and Marley J. Munro, just to name a few. Thank you so much for supporting. We have so much extra footage on there. We have so many extra clips and interviews and chats on there. You want to support this podcast? Uh, then go there and support that way. A link to that is in the show notes. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy our amazing chat with the wonderful Mr. Stephen, Stephen Fry. Fry. How is he not a dame? I wonder if he's turned things down. I don't know. I think he's turned it down because there's been, I searched that because I was like, oh, why is he not? Yeah. I was going to put that in my intro and I thought, don't, because he might go, well, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, he kind of does it anyway when he says, uh, I'm going to correct you. I thought, oh, shit, this yeah, is yeah. really embarrassing. What have I done? I know, and it wasn't, wasn't bad at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sit back and relax and enjoy. A lovely chat. Myself, Matthew Butler Hart, Tori Butler Hart, chatting with the amazing Stephen Fry. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hello. Here we are. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? We're very, I'm very enjoying good. my new studio display screen because it's got oh. this um, ability to. Pan with you. Oh, yes. Oh, nice. I thought Look you were doing that. That's that. amazing. It's panning with you cool? as you move. That's yeah. really cool. What is that? I, I want that. 
the Apple Studio Display. So you might know Stephen Fry as the voice of Harry Potter audiobooks, as the former presenter of QI, or as General Melchett in Blackadder. Or maybe you have read one of his recent books on the Greek myths, or his amazing trilogy of biographies. He is one of Britain's best love actors. He's also a comedian, presenter, author, screenwriter, and director. He's known the world over for his achievements in the arts, his fight for LGBTQ rights, and he's now the president of the MCC. It is the national treasure, the living icon, Stephen Fry on the Filmmakers Podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome. Though I have to correct you on a slight point. It's uh, tediously pedantic of me, but I'm the president designate of oh. the MCC. My term doesn't start till October the 1st, and the wonderful Deep Claire sorry. Connor is the current yes. president. The first woman president. Well, I have to say, Stephen, my father specifically said, when I said that I was speaking to you, he said, please, will you pass on my congratulations to him? He's very excited. <laughs> he is very excited, and he, think you, he thinks oh, you are thank perfect. You. Those who understand, many others think it's the most ludicrous and weird and meaningless thing imaginable, <laughs> uh, which is what they think of cricket generally. But as for the, the, the dusty byways of clubs and uh, their 300-year-old history or whatever, that's I can understand why it is everybody's test to tay. Yeah, test literally to tay. Now, interestingly, there hasn't been that <laughs> many films about cricket. Has there no, not too many? No, hmm. um, there's The Last Test, which was written by Terence Rattigan, the great playwright Terence Rattigan, and stars Jack Warner and Robert Morley. And it's about a, a professional cricketer, kind of Jack Hobbs type. Because, you know, it, th one of the extraordinary things about cricket is how it's a window onto the world and how it, you know, it began you know, it's an English country game. And then as England and Britain changed and became a, a colonial power, the game was taken around the world, like so much that was English. Mm -hmm. And so it has a colonial footprint, which is both, you know, a terrible yeah. thing, a reminder of the the weird way we thought we could just mm. walk into people's mm -hmm. countries and steal their belongings and tax them and uh, mm -hmm. basically quarry their minerals and generally impoverish them and enrich ourselves. We don't need to go into it. We all understand, I think, the dark side of colonialism and empire. But cricket might almost be regarded as a, an exemption or something which it's hard to use the word pride and colonialism in the same sentence. But mm. it has given, you know, around the world enormous pleasure. And it has allowed those countries that yeah. are colonial and that have been under the heel of, of the empire to get their revenge by defeating us consistently. <laughs> but yes. even, even more weirdly, um, yes, it was again, again, again. right up in, into my lifetime. I mean, when I was able to understand cricket, there was still an annual match called Gentlemen v. Players. Wow. In which amateurs... Gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen played the professional players like mm -hmm. so in the last of the amateur um, and professional game the gentlemen v players uh, famous players like fred truman who, mm -hmm. who was was a professional and edridge uh, and uh, it's it's just extraordinary to think of that so things have changed anyway that that film is about a professional a kind right. of jack hobbs figure mm. uh, jack warner and it's it's quite charming it's quite sweet but and there are some you know bollywood movies on cricket yes of course because it's ah. huge over in india it's, yeah that'll be fun. it's and pakistan the third religion yeah. of india after yeah, after islam and hindu um, <laughs> but now you are soon to be president shall we say um you, yeah. do you think well now you can say okay well we can use the oval or we can use some of these places do you think that that's a chance for us to make 
a film uh, about cricket? Is this something maybe that Stephen Fry might write? I don't know. I'm just throwing it in there. One of the deep problematic things about British movies is that how many of them are all the same? <laughs> in, in, I mean, not yours, not all movies. You know, there's a fantastic, thriving independent sector and some remarkable filmmakers. But so many of the movies that get signed off on are either about the Second World War, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at or mud at any particular film, but I think we know the recent ones that have come and gone, some of them. Mm. Uh, um, uh, or they're about... A group of charming sort of working class people who um, have their great moment in the sun as their brass band or their naked calendar or their their new their nudist show. You know that they're all in that, you know, aren't they? It's strange how, how many there are like that, and and they're trying to follow a I guess a an Ealing model of of the of the of the late forties and fifties, the Great Ealing period under Mark, under Michael. Balkan, when films like Passport to Pimlico and the Titfield Thunderbolt, which were about the little person striking back against against bureaucracy, against corporatism, against, uh, you know, they, they were sort of uh, part of that utopian socialism that followed the Second World War. And, and there is something mm. very mm. likable about them, their belief in the, the common man, but also not at the expense of eccentric, old-fashioned, you know, usually played by Dennis Price or Alistair Sim or something. Mm. Yeah, but we we love those movies, and that's the thing I think mm. about those dealing comedies and those, the, the, you know, the Richard Curtis comedy. We do right. love them as much as a lot of people fight against them. No, we hate these movies. Everyone watches yeah. Love Actually and loves it every Christmas. So a cricket version. I beg to differ. Oh, <laughs> what? What? I yeah. love it. Get We're it. in a different camp. Yeah. Um, different. Oh. <laughs> Sort of, I know what you mean. A sort of like bend it like Beckham qu cricket equivalent mm. would be wonderful. Yeah. Have you ever read the? It, it would be interesting. There's a book, Stephen. I don't know whether you've ever read it called Rain Men um, by Marcus Bergman. No, I don't know it. Tell me it's about it. It's a lovely book. It's re I mean, it's been many years since I read it, but it's absolutely fantastic. Is and it, one with your dad's friends? It, well, no, I think. Well, I mean, oh, I dad, dad, oh, dad, it dad it played with him. Okay. This, oh, is not, this is not a shameless plug. Dad's mate's book. No, it is a lovely, lovely story. So, um, yes, if you haven't read it, Rain Men is definitely, is definitely I worth reading. Thank you, Tori. Yeah, I'll, I'll go for it, <laughs> definitely. There we go. I suppose one film that did use cricket to its great advantage is Shaun of the Dead, uh, which used <laughs> yes, the cricket bat. Yes, that's true. A cricket bat. bat yeah. as a yeah, modern they, sort they, of take on it. They plough a splendid furrow, that group, don't <laughs> yes, they? They're, 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 they're do. wonderful. Wonderful, the Edgar Wrights. Do you prefer the voiceover side? of work or interview side because your voiceover work is incredible you know the being the voice of harry potter or in alice in wonderland things like that and i suppose what it means to you uh those two things i yes i've, I've always felt i mean essentially when i was very young and i wanted to be an actor out of an excess of um there isn't really an opposite word to vanity, is there? But but there was a kind of um, I I I just so disliked how I looked and and moved uh, and everything to do with my body. I hated sport back then. Can you imagine? I mean, cricket was an exception, but I didn't, you know. And I 
I couldn't dance and couldn't throw or run or anything without colliding with a tree or something. And um, <laughs> uh, so all I felt I had was my mind and my voice, really. So I pictured if I was going to be an actor, I would probably be a radio actor or something like that. And I did picture doing, they weren't called audio books then, they were called, you know, um, spoken books for the blind was basically mm. the, 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 the sector. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. I'll do as a volunteer i'll just read books into a microphone i thought that sounded delicious yeah because you don't need to put on costumes or makeup or look good you just it's just you and an imaginary person in your ear um or you know you're in their ear and and um i still love that i love being that side of the glass in a studio um there's something very pleasing about it and the rhythm of it and but having said that the joy of life is variety, and and if I can, you know, if I do several books, and during lockdown, I think I did twenty five audio books for Audible, the wow. audiobook country oh, wow. company. I have a little sound sort of studio in my house in Norfolk, and so I was able to go there and sit myself down and read. So I did fifteen P.G. Woodhouse, and uh, um, I did a you know some George Orwell and, and various others. And uh, so, so that was really satisfying. But as soon as, as soon as the lockdown freeze began to melt, I was up, you know, very happy to do uh, a couple of, uh, of things in vision. I did a, um, a Hulu, uh, mm -hmm. which is Disney Plus over here, called The Dropout, which I enjoyed mm. enormously. Which we are watching, watching at the moment. Oh, are you? Well, yeah, it's quite something. Yeah. It's, yeah. Very, my, it's fantastic. Yeah. It, it really is good, isn't it? And my, my role is very sad, unfortunately, as, as you will see. Well, don't, we haven't finished, we haven't finished we, I won't give anything away. Don't give it away. <laughs> um, and I did a, a, a small part in a, a Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, which mm -hmm. is due out at some point, I'm not quite sure when. And I, was, <laughs> I, I did a voice in a Netflix called Heartstopper, which is on at the moment and is absolutely charming, sweet, schoolboy yeah, crush love story. That, it's yeah. absolutely divine and really, really lovely. Gosh, I would have loved that when I was a schoolboy myself. It would have made mm. me feel much less annoyed with myself. Uh, speaking of that schoolboy thing or schoolgirl thing, it's, you know, being the voice of the Harry Potter books, so many people have listened to your voice. And I remember listening to The Secret Seven and The Famous Five when I was a boy and can still mm. remember the sort of intro and the name of the person doing it, you know, that whole intro bit. For you, how, did, how does that feel to be this voice it's amazing really i mean uh, people thank me for making their car journeys uh, more bearable <laughs> and keeping no. the children quiet yes and yes yeah, someone shouted at me in the street once uh, my children go to bed with you and i thought that was probably not the best way of expressing oh, what he was trying to express but no it's, it's an extraordinary privilege uh, to meet people who now of course fully adult uh, for whom listening to harry potter was an important part of their childhood a really important part both in some cases it helped them enormously with their reading funnily enough it's kind of counterintuitive but what they would they said what they would do a lot of children would listen and follow it in the book you know with their finger on the lines and and, yeah. and that gave them a real yeah. sort of confidence and uh they say, oh, and I was always saying Hermione. I didn't realise it was Hermione and things like that, which is so yeah. sweet. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's 
of course, the, one of the exciting things was watching it all grow, because when I did the first book, there was just one book. And no one had heard mm. the name J.K. Rowling or Harry Potter. It, it, it was just simply uh, another gig, if you like, when wow. you do this wow. audiobook. Mm. And, and I, I realized they were utterly charming. And I, and I said to, to Joe when, I, when we'd finished, I said, you know, this is really good. Uh, I think it's going to be a great success. She said, thank you. As a matter of fact, I've, I've already written a second, which will be coming out in, in six months' time. And, and, and <laughs> she says, I said to her, Good for you. <laughs> sounds appallingly Good patronizing. I can't believe I said it quite like that. But, but you know, <laughs> I liked to know I was encouraging and said, well, that's great, you know. Uh, and of course, the second one, by the third, I was, you know, if I'd, I'd go to a dinner party at a friend's house or something and I'd say, oh, forgive me if I'm a bit hoarse. I've just been, you know, doing, finished my second day on a, on a, on a long children's book. And they'd go, oh, which one? And I'd say, it's called Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It's the third in a series. They'd go, oh, I've heard about, is this the boy who becomes a wizard? And I'd go, yes. Go, oh, yeah, I've been reading about this. It's in the newspapers these days. And slowly one would become aware that it was becoming wow. a complete phenomenon. And then she did her American tour yeah. and uh, and it was just as big if not bigger in the united states and of course had the usual mad people calling for the books and probably her to be burned uh, as they are now weirdly enough of course but mm -hmm. for different reasons and uh, and so it was just marvelous to follow this phenomenon the the the, yeah. the biggest literary phenomenon since since dickens really probably right. in terms of sheer numbers and it was just another gig I love that because you, you like you say you've done loads of these. Yes, I mean it became then a uh, yeah. I, I, towards the last four of them, one couldn't read the manuscript or the first galley proofs of the as they're called, you know, or or the first printing, um, except under conditions of extreme security because it then it started to enter a territory that no no books enter especially children's books so i would go to the bloomsbury which was the publisher's offices then in in soho square and i'd be searched and wow. i'd go into a room where <laughs> the, got the, the, the <laughs> manuscript was laid out and I was allowed to take notes on, you know, but I, I, my, they said they reserved the right to look through my notes on my way out, just on new characters that might come and voices I might use for them. Uh, because by this time, of course, it, it, it wasn't so much that the fear of spoilers, although that was big, it was the fear of spoilers as far as bookmakers were concerned because oh. there was this whole thing about people betting on who was going to die and who was mm. you know all these oh, different wow. things so um yeah wow. and that's that's not normal no it's not <laughs> and uh, and and did you ever feel aggrieved that you were never in them as well was there any no, no I, I didn't actually no right um i mean th there was an inquiry for a part and ah. and i wasn't able to do it and who knows if it was anything more than just an inquiry but 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 i felt well i play all the characters and that's extremely enjoyable and mm. i'm quite happy to do that you know so so it was fine you know and they right. chose such wonderful people yes and you've worked with some amazing directors you know stephen mm. frears the list goes on uh david Yeager. Tim Burton, John Sessinger, Guy Ritchie, Rob Altman, Peter Jackson, you know. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Very fortunate. Well, not all fortunate or skilled, but what did you learn from working with those directors? Do you feel, did you grow each time? Was there a, a thing where you thought, oh, I see what they're doing here? Yes, I realised, 
um, quite early on that the best directors are usually very quiet. If you visit a film set and you don't know what the director looks like, you can decide who they are because they're probably the person doing least. Um, <laughs> and that's a shock to some people. Mm. They think the director is shouting, and action, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, um, it's usually the first assistant who does the, the shouting and the moving people around. The director might occasionally pop you know, move from what's known as video village these days, the mm -hmm. array of monitors with which they check out, uh, because you, these days it's usually more than one camera. Um, uh, uh, not quite as many as you get in a TV studio, but you often have t two and, and, and sometimes three cameras for, for an ordinary scene. And so there, there, are, the, there are the monitors and a, a nice comfy chair and, and some nibbles. And the director's there, and it's sometimes quite a long way away from the main action where the shooting's going on. And they might occasionally just sort of wander on and whisper to an actor or say a few words to an art director or the or the cinematographer and then and then go back to their seat again and then, you know, they'll say a few words after after the first take or the first rehearsal. Um, and that when I first visited a set or first was an actor on a set was quite a shock. And it was actually when I was at Cambridge, when I was at university, I, I was an extra uh, in Chariots of Fire, which was, mm. was being shot there. And not running, I take it. <laughs> yeah. No, not running, definitely not running. Just playing some silly old student in the background here and there. But I, I was convinced that the, that the, the assistant director, the first, was, was the director because they were the ones shouting and telling everyone where to move and what to do and, and where to look. And it was every single direction was from, from that person. And then someone said, um, oh, that's the director there. And there was this person reading a newspaper sitting in a chair. <laughs> Uh, Hudson, and, and I was completely baffled by this. I thought, well, he's obviously hopeless. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then, you know, the next few things I started to do, I was, I noticed again with Stephen Frears, for example, he was just so quiet. And uh, and then you discover, of course, what's going on. That the John Schlesinger said to me when I directed the film Bright Young Things, and I called him up and asked for his advice. He said, "Well, my dear," he said, um, "you must remember the three phases of of." filmmaking there's the pre-production there's the principal photography and there's the post i said now that you'll discover straight away that the pre-production the casting both of the actors and of your heads of department and even your prop buyers is the most important part once that's done you arrive on the set the film is more or less completed but of course <laughs> when you're on set that's when you're the director. That's the most important part of it. When you're there talking to the actors and making sure that everything you want is in the can. And then there's the post-production. The most important part of filming. That's when the film gets made. <laughs> and he was telling a severe and ridiculous self-contradictory truth that, that those three phases are each the most important part. They're each when the film gets made. If you... I suppose really what he was saying, if you screw up one of them, the film gets ruined. So if you screw up the pre-production, if you haven't prepared yourself and you haven't got the right personnel around you and you haven't chosen the right locations and the right production design and, and cast, obviously, and you haven't done what rehearsal might need to be done or technical rehearsal and so on, if you haven't got that right, then the principal photography is going to be a nightmare. You'll get behind, you'll be slow, you'll be frustrated, you'll be angry with yourself for not preparing better. Um, and if, of course, you don't get every shot you need and cover yourself properly and, uh, and you know, push, push it 
um, so that even if it's annoying to people, you have to have that other take, you have to do that other setup. Um, then you'll regret it in the post because you'll look and you'll think, oh God, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? Why did I, was I so lazy? Why did I think I didn't need that? You know, and so on and, 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 and so on. And, and, and you can indeed build so much in that. Um, post and and that's you know Tori and, and Matt will know exactly what I mean that that's it's anyone who's made a movie will, will know that that's true those three parts being a director is really having to answer questions all the time and and and, and that's the most <laughs> frustrating part because you're thinking about one thing and you're just really wondering should this be a traveling shot should it be you know, whatever it might be that some sort of issue in your head and someone comes up and says Someone from wardrobe says, oh, the the wedding scene that we're doing next week, um, which hat for Julia's character? Do you think the yellow one or the blue one? And you think, oh, for God's sake, does it matter? And you go, the, ah, no, the yellow one's fine. And, and then in the cutting room, you think, why did she wear that yellow hat? It's so distracting. <laughs> it's really annoying. Or why didn't I suggest the yellow hat? Then she could be picked out so much better from the crowd as it is. They're all wearing blue hats and I can't see her properly and mm. I should have answered the question. I should have thought it through. You know, those are the things you, you want to tell anybody starting out as a director. You know, all the grand stuff about crossing the line and, you know, the technical business that people think is filmmaking. You can leave that to the camera operator and the director and the script supervisor. They know everything about crossing the line. And, and, and you know, not everybody has a brain that is very good at, at translating 3D into 2D. Because you, you forget when you get to the cutting room that the film is two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. But when you're on a set, it's three-dimensional. So everything is left to right or right to left or up and down. There is no behind i mean obviously there is behind you get a sense of it you can wrap focus and things to suggest depth but essentially it's on a flat screen like this screen here you know flat <laughs> and um the the perception of depth is obviously important but when it comes to the um you know the the all the technical stuff about which direction people look at which is always so confusing when you're an actor when you start out because you know, you're used to, almost all actors are trained for the stage first in mm -hmm. Britain. You know, mm -hmm. the, the drama schools are better now at preparing them a little for film and TV, but generally speaking, it's fencing and Shakespeare and speeches. Mm -hmm. And speeches are, are theatre because theatre is a rhetorical medium. Movies mm -hmm. are not rhetorical. I mean, you can have speeches and people do talk, and sometimes the language is thrilling, but essentially it's about what you're looking at. It's a, 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 and and um, so you arrive on the set your first day as an actor for something. And you, I'm in a film. I'm in a film. I can't believe it. I've got a part. I've, you've learnt your lines, and the first says, "Okay, well, we're going to have a line up," and the, and the director goes, "Action!" You go into your lines, like this. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's staring at you. What the fuck is he doing? <laughs> and it's just, whoa, 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 whoa! Calm down, calm down. Just say the lines. Don't, don't worry about it like that. Go, oh, okay. Oh, sorry. And, and you've prepared things you start to move and they go whoa where are you going and you've been in the hotel room overnight thinking i've got a stalk over here i'm walking <laughs> all that goes out the window you, all you need to know is to have learnt your lines and to have thought about why you're saying them why your character is saying them and what they want 
out of the scene and all those sort of things. But the, the, uh, otherwise, you know, someone's going to put their hands on your shoulders and say, stand there, and someone's going to put some tape, coloured tape on the floor and say, that's where you stand, <laughs> and maybe another piece, and say, that's where you move. And and then they're suddenly saying, oh, can you leave with your left shoulder as you walk across? And you're going, what? Okay. <laughs> and, and then they're saying, okay, and look uh, here, um, we can't have the... See that yellow um, piece of um, gaffer tape on the... Uh, on the on the mat box that's that's your eye line what do you mean it's my eye line that's that's where you look when you talk to to caroline um she she, she can't be behind the camera there isn't room and uh, there's all the lamps in the way so, <laughs> so she'll do the voice but don't look to her she'll be over there don't look towards her just look there and you go okay you start talking to them or then when you're behind giving your off lines they keep moving you closer to the camera and you think but i was over there and they go no no it's your eye line it's got to be really close you know just narrow it and uh, it's all that and you think what, what is this about and it's only when you've ever been in a cutting room and you look that you think oh i get it that's it because film scene is made up of the dynamic tension between eyes that meet each other and when a character is alone on screen in in a shot a single in other words and they're looking at the person they're talking to the audience which has been trained on watching movies since the invention of the genre and since dw griffith and eisenstein and others kind of define the grammar and language of movies that people we know how to look and 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 filmmakers know how to make a conversation look as if it really is happening even though the setups could could have been hours apart and so on and it's alive and it's the eyes you look at they've done tests um, on huge, you know, if you do a huge scene, like in the days of the, in the 50s when Cinerama and Cinemascope and these formats were trying to, you know, to battle with TV and to make um, cinema more exciting and huger, that's when they started doing huge landscapes. You know, Bond movies always start with a great sort of huge sweeping shot of the bay and, and it's fine and it's nice. Travelogue cinema is very interesting. You see the landscapes and the, you know, it's all beautifully done. But the moment a human being walks in, uh, walks on screen, all eyes go to that human being. Not just to the human being, but to that human being's eyes. Mm. Um, and John Ford, for example, one of the greatest ever of the American film directors, an absolute genius. Even if you don't like Westerns, and some people are put off by Westerns, if, they, if you watch a few John Ford f films, you'll see that the fact that Westerns is, you know, it's important to him and to John Wayne, you know, Duke, Duke Wayne, as he was known. Um, but uh, it, it, there's so much more than that. There's something quite extraordinarily powerful and remarkable about them. And um, he was once asked by Michael uh, Bogdanovich, who, who was this uh, director himself, of course, and a, huge, a hugely knowledgeable and, and fascinated film historian who, who, was, who died recently, in fact, uh, mm. but he was of the right age to interview, which he did on film, that the masters, are, and I'm afraid they were all masters, they were all male, of, of, of the golden age of Hollywood uh, uh, in terms of directors, um, in particular Howard Hawks and John Ford. And famously, John Ford would bat away and disavow any uh, any descriptions of him as an artist or a, you know, a great creative uh, maker because he didn't like that. You know, he was very macho, as was Howard Hawks, and they kind of pretended that they didn't know what they were doing almost, but of course they did. Um, but there's one moment which I think is, what, what is so important for all filmmakers to know about, which is when Bogd Bogdanovich says to 
Um, John Forty asked him a question about Monument Valley, which is this part of Arizona with these huge mesas, these towering rock formations in red yeah. sandstone. Uh, and he, he made, I don't know, 11 or 12 movies there with Duke Wayne and, um, and, uh, and Bogdanovich in his nebbishy way, as, as we Jews say, it's a you know, slightly kind of nerdy way uh, of talking, says, um, Mr. Ford, you know, what is it about Monument Valley that so appealed to you, the, the vastness of the landscape? Is it, is it something to do with mankind trying to imprint himself on the, on, on the, on the hugeness of nature? Is it, is it just simply the beauty of, of what is there? Is it to make a, a, a backdrop? What is it about this landscape that so appealed to you? And there's a big pause, and Papa Ford says, uh, there's only one landscape that ever interested me, the Duke's face. <laughs> and, and and that's the yeah he did go and shoot out there partly because it took him away from Hollywood and the suits who could control yeah. him from the various exactly. uh, studios so he could have his own little independent republic out miles and miles from Hollywood but that's the truth of the matter and you watch those movies and the scenery is amazing and sometimes you stop to wonder about how they did those incredible travelling shots mm -hmm. in cars alongside cavalry and horses and things like that and how amazing the, the you know his use of the camera is um, but but it is faces it's people looking yeah, at each right. other absolutely and and that's yeah. that's what movies are about it's the eye contact and the dynamism when Stephen Campbell Moore played the lead in my film Bright Young Things and uh, um, the, the day came when he was going to spend his day um, with, with a scene with Peter O'Toole Mm. legendary great legendary. actor yeah and one of my uh, he favorite was, scenes in most yeah films, and steve and it. steven was a bit nervous <laughs> as you can imagine i was reasonably nervous i knew peter and he had accepted the part and and, and you know i was thrilled with that and so on the morning um i took Stephen ran to Peter's trailer, and, and so I want to introduce you to Stephen Campbell-Morris. He said, let's come out into the light, darling, into the light. So he stepped out of the trailer, and he, and, and he faced Stephen and pointed at his eyes and said, look at me, look at me, look at me, hold, hold the gaze, hold the gaze. You'll do! <laughs> and wow. Stephen indeed gave him a look back, and and, 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 and oh it's Peter Anders. How terrifying! It? Terrifying, but brilliant because he said, "You'll do," which is yeah. as great a compliment as you could ever give a fellow actor. But it meant you you can look at me without being afraid. You can look into my eyes, and I see not. You know how it is with an eye. If if you look at someone and you're just your eyes directed towards them. The person being looked at knows that the eye isn't seeing into their eye. They're just seeing onto the surface of it. It's, and the camera sees that, more mm. importantly. The camera can tell the difference between someone just sort of looking and someone actually looking, someone mm. seeing. And, and it's not that the average cinema goer is able to articulate that. I, they just think, nah, I didn't think they were very good or I didn't believe them in that scene. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Sorry, incredibly long answer. I can't remember what the question was. No, it's a fantastic, fantastic answer. The camera doesn't lie. Absolutely doesn't lie. And that's the thing. It's as, as directors, we sort of try to spot when actors may be lying or faking with those bits. I certainly do. I think that's really, really fascinating. And, and sometimes, of course, it's even more complicated because in a lot of movies, which are about human complexity, usually, you're filming uh, an actor pretending to be someone who is themselves pretending mm. because a lot of the characters you play lie. Yeah. You know, yes. because they're murderers or thieves or, mm -hmm. you know, they've got some problem uh, and uh, they, they need to solve something or they're being deceitful in some way that could be amusing or, or terrifying. So yeah. you've got 
to you've got to lie but tell the truth about your lying. <laughs> it's kind of really, uh, and, and the best actors can do it, and, and 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 when they do it, it's mysterious and wonderful that they can. Also, it's all the um, the amazing convention of filmmaking. Like you know, we know that we just audiences know that when we're in a sort of a single, it's just one actor that they're allowed to show us that they are lying, and that we know that the other character, unless it's in the script, is not going to pick that up as well. It's this amazing sort of uh, symbiotic relationship almost with the camera, isn't it? I was lucky enough to be very very close friends towards the end of his life with the great John Mills, Sir John Mills, who was who was a leading actor in Britain in the 50s and 60s in particular, where he started in the 40s, um, and um, in, in the war, actually, 39 almost. Um, and he won an Oscar for his performance in Ryan's Daughter, but... And, he, he he could play you know Cockney figures or um, officer class or things like that. There's some really great performances. Uh, the Power and the Glory with Alec Guinness. Uh, no, not uh, Tunes of Glory. I'm, I'm big upon with Alec Guinness is a particularly astonishing performance. Where he has a breakdown, which is terrifying. And and he always. I remember a party he gave at his house in Denham, uh, and there was another marvellous British actor there, Lionel Jeffries, who was a great comic actor um, with Peter Sellers in uh, Two Way Stretch and The Wrong Arm of the Law, played the Marquis of Queensbury in Peter Finch's uh, Oscar Wilde movie. Um, most people remember him as Grandpa in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Right. Pete O.S.H. Life for me. That one, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that figure that. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> he was fantastic actor. And I remember I followed Johnny into the kitchen or something to open some bottles of wine with him or whatever it was. And I said, God, it's such a pleasure to meet Lionel Jeffries. And Johnny said, yes, Lionel Jeffries, incapable of ever showing the wheels turning, um, a genius. And that was John's thing. If you could see the wheels turning, it all fell apart. Um, mm. You know, uh, you see the actors' wheels turning. You could see the characters' wheels turning, which yeah. is a wonderful. Yes. Thing. Yep. Yeah. If you saw the actors, you know, suddenly the mask slips, and you see an actor acting or trying to act or trying to do something. Mm. We've all seen it, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. and it's 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 extraordinary um, how sensitive. It, it's one of the most important truths about cinema, and it's very noticeable whenever you see interviews with really great directors, like Al Alfred Hitchcock is a perfect example, is they, they talk about the audience almost more than they talk about the actors or the, or the film crew, because that, they're seeing it from that point of view. And, of course, it was easier for them because their audience was always the same. It was a group of people sitting in the dark in a cinema. There was no other audience that a film could have in the, in the early days. Um, and Hitchcock always talked about them in the dark there. And it's worth remembering, that, and that's my point about seeing the wheels wheel, that, that there is a skill to being in the audience. It's not a skill that you need to bring in terms of effort, but that the training that I mentioned earlier that we've all had since since earliest childhood in mm -hmm. knowing how to watch movies and how, how to interpret character and how the music blends with it. The whole thing, we, we're used to something that... Only, you know, my my grandparents, but certainly their parents, my great-grandparents, certainly, if they were confronted with any kind of movie that we make now, they would be utterly unable to watch it. They'd be terrified for a start, of course, but they wouldn't make sense of it. They just simply wouldn't follow the story. It would be like, you know, it's as if you'd thrown a jigsaw puzzle up in the air and said, there, what do you think of that as a picture? It isn't a picture. What are you talking about? It's just, <laughs> it's big, what? Oh, well, you know, they'd be utterly baffled. So we forget that we are literate in the ways of cinema and filmmakers uh, have to, I think, you know, and actors understand that, that the 
um, that the audiences read character so well. And, and there's some instinct that the great film actor has that they know that, and so they don't have to try and project it. Mm. And, and, and that's the mistake that young actors who are not instinctive film actors and who may have been more used to the stage, that's the, the mistake they make is they try and think, well, my job is to project a feeling. I'm supposed to show that I'm happy. I'm supposed to show that I'm angry. I'm supposed to, you know, do, do this. And, and that's not what you do in real life. <laughs> you, and, and, and it, it's, I'm sure you as directing, you know, you've often said to an actor, actually just, you know, just say the line, don't you know? Don't don't try and force it, you know, and just bring it down, you know. And actors think, well, what do you want me for? Why, do, you know? And yet, of course, <laughs> despite the fact that you don't want actors to act, Milos Forman always used to say, "Someone somewhere on this film set is acting. Stop it at once." You know? <laughs> <laughs> Love that someone, someone. I'm not going to point names or tell anyone. Just someone, someone. <laughs> Fan mail. Fan mail. Sponsored by Soldo. Uh, so tell me which famous person wrote to us this week. A pretty big guy called Darth Vader. You may know him from the Star Wars films. Oh, yeah. He was the one who had breathing problems, wasn't he? Yes. And ever since, he's typecast as the baddie. And he really wants to do cats in the West End. But no one takes him seriously. He was always choking about that. But he sounds serious. Yeah. And I think he would be great. He's got this deep, raspy voice that would be perfect for cats. Like a stuck furball. And as we at the Filmmakers Podcast, at the forefront of indie filmmaking, he has asked us for help. Can we help him, Charles? Well, of course we can. Because we use Soldo. What's Soldo? Well, Soldo is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees or production assistants. You'll be able to track spending real-time, instantly transfer funds to all cardholders for free and establish budgets, rules, and much more. Get three months for free using the promo code FILMMAKERSPOD. Oh, Darth, uh, be careful. That hands Soldo can be a right handful. Yeah, I heard he always shoots first. He's as clumsy as he is stupid. Sorry about that. Apology accepted. Just don't forget about us when you're destroying planets. Yeah, we want to be a rising star, not a death star. Do you think do, your experience as an actor uh, did that? Did that when you were directing Bright Young Things had that already sort of informed some of these ideas, or was it the directing? Did you did, because you were having to look at things from a different perspective change? Yes, I mean it, it had, and and of course uh, I uh, was so excited by the cast I'd assembled that I and I knew that I, I the, that how good they were, even ones who had not done it before, because uh, that was an extraordinary experience. Uh, you know, there were two. Um, parts in particular, I was finding difficult to cast, and and uh, it so happened that on the like the fourth day of casting with a video camera and trying to give everybody a, a chance to show how good they were and just not feeling they were right, I suddenly had d th these two young actors who had not really done anything. And I thought, oh, this is like a joke. They're so perfect. And they were David Tennant and uh, uh, and James McAvoy. Yeah. And uh, and, and Fenella Woodgar as well, actually. He was also the same day. He was brilliant as Agatha. And and it just made me so happy. And and they when they arrived for the first day's rehearsal, which we did have a little rehearsal, they both said they were convinced that they hadn't got the part. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, why is that? He was so good. He said, well, 
because we'd hardly opened our mouths before he said, great, thanks, goodbye. I said, oh, yes, but that's true, because you were perfect. There was nothing I could need say to you. It's when, it's when people come and they're not right. You say, well, maybe you could try it this way, or maybe you could try it that way, and you have a half-hour session with them because you're trying to see if they can do it, and then you go, well, thanks very much, and you'll never think of them again. But someone who's perfect, you just go, great, right, off you go, thank you. See, <laughs> And they're going home crying into their cereal. <laughs> Tony Hopkins, Tom, his wonderful story about how he was cast in the 60s in that masterpiece of a film, um, Aaron Sorkin's favourite film. Apparently he watches it 10 times a year. Um, the Lion in Winter. Do, do you know the film? It's a magnificent film with Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn in the lead roles. It's about Henry II, uh, who he is the lion, and he's in his castle at winter, and he's trying to work out the succession who's going to follow him, and he has three sons. And Tony Hopkins is, is not well known to the public, but he's quite well known in the profession by this time. He's been Laurence Olivier's understudy and had to go on a few times at the old Vic, and mm -hmm. uh, Peter O'Toole calls him to uh, an audition because Peter is producer as well as star of this movie and he says hello tony lovely to see you old boy i says now um uh, three parts that might, might suit you um the, the henry the second i'm playing him that uh, bitch uh hepburn is playing my wife um <laughs> now of, of my three sons there's jeffrey the bastard um um there's uh, richard uh who's queer um and there's john who's a cunt um, <laughs> so have a read of each, darling. And so uh, Tony Hopkins says, "All right, yeah, no, thank you. Yes, I have a read, and uh, uh, he, he has a read." And then there's a little pause, and, and Peter says, "You're the queer. See you Monday." <laughs> right, that's the best piece of casting you've ever You're the queer. See you Monday. See you, well, uh, it's just fabulous, isn't it? Brilliant. <laughs> and he is brilliant. He is brilliant. You mentioned earlier about that going up to actors and whispering. You know, the directors you were like when you first started acting and seeing them reading a newspaper and slowly walk onto set. When you were doing bright young things and when you weren't necessarily getting the performance or you wanted, or you could see the cogs turning. Maybe you didn't at all, and everyone was amazing. How did you balance that process of speaking to an actor and trying to get something out of them that you wanted? Because it's always very, very difficult. Yeah. I'm, I found one of the things is that that they were all, as actors usually are, very keen to be given notes. Actors like to hear. Um, I mean, obviously, at the, the human level, they like to be praised. Of course, of uh, there, was, there was one scene where there were about six people in the scene, um, and we were doing it in one take, and it was like Jim Broadbent and Simon Callow and various others. And, 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 so, and Simon Callow was at the end of the line, and, uh, I, and I said to each of them, I said, brilliant, wonderful, fantastic. Incredible. And and then finally uh, to Simon, uh, unbelievable. And uh, he looked at me and said, I, I don't think you should say to an actor that he's just been unbelievable. <laughs> but um, no, so, so you would praise them. But then, I mean, I suppose you'd find little psychological tricks are very good, though you have to be very good at them because actors are pretty smart at, at winkling them out. And the most obvious one is uh, allowing an actor to believe it's their idea. And actors will do the same to directors. So you'll say, uh, as an actor, you often say to a director, do you remember you told me earlier that maybe I should do it this way? I think I think you were right. And then the director will go, okay, yeah, do, it, do, do, do it my way then. <laughs> Fact is your idea. And similarly, you can do the same to actors. You, know, you, can, you can say, in an earlier rehearsal, you did it 
in such a way that dot, dot, dot. I think that was a brilliant instinct. I'd try that again. And in fact, they didn't do that, but you wanted them to, but you allow them to own it and then they'll feel much more confident about it rather than trying to just repeat something that you've, they've been told to do. Um, but, but most actors, uh, unfortunately, these were young, mostly young, and like, you know, they were so on for it and, and I could tease them into into doing it so that was shit let's do it well now shall we and they kind of laugh and that would be funny but um no it, it, it was uh, and sometimes you do it is a, a thing that all the things you used to laugh at when when you were young and very sensitive to what you thought was bullshit and pretension you realize wasn't bullshit and pretension after all like actors saying what's my motive to which you go <laughs> your paycheck oh, <laughs> no no characters don't do things unless they have a reason for doing it they're hungry, they're full of desire, they're full of hate, they, they, they're bored, you know, that's why they do things. And, and if you're not sure as an actor, you know, someone says, you know, walk across the room now, uh, you're thinking, you know, well, you know, okay, I've been in situations where I suddenly walk across the room, but turning my back on someone's got, you know, I've got to square it so I can just do it believably. And, and you find ways of helping actors with that sometimes. So you, you might, I mean, sometimes it is, a, you know, a scene with two people and, you, you know, the hero and the heroine, if you can you know, use those phrases. And, and um, you, you might say to her, you know, while you're ticking him off, you might suddenly just notice how beautiful his eyes are. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I like that. Or they'll go, oh, I don't get it. You know, sometimes just things like that really work. And you see, and when you see a, a, a really, you know, Emily Mortimer, for example, who played Nina in the film, she's a wonderful actress. And, you know, you'd say something like that, and then you'd see her, and you'd see her suddenly hungrily looking at his eyes or something, and just, and, and you'd, oh, yes, that really worked, you know. The, and, and those are the sort of things actors can can get a grip on because it's it's practical, and, and they can see how that would, you know, give us, a sort of new direction to a scene and make it less mm. of a, you know, less obvious. Did you adapt what you did as a director for, for different actors as well? Yes, you do that. Again, I think one does that instinctively. You know the sensitivities of different people, or at least you 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 you, you, you presume to judge how some people don't like to be told what to do. You know, there are, uh, there are, I mean, there are far fewer now than there used to be. I remember, this is a stage thing, but one, one of the first stage plays I did professionally was Adam Bennett's 40 Years On, uh, and it was a, the first revival of it. it. It had originally been done in the 60s with Alec Guinness and uh, Adam Bennett himself in the role that I was playing. And it, we had the same director, Patrick Garland, and he said that when Gielgud left the role after um, a year, I think, in it. It was a huge hit in the 60s. Uh, Emlyn, uh, Emlyn Williams, the, 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 the Welsh actor and, and writer who wrote uh, Green was... Uh, no, who wrote The Corn is Green, um, which is on at the moment at the National. Um, and he took over, and he was a rather grand sort of figure, Emlyn was. And Patrick was a little scared of him, unlike um, Gielgud, who was a much better known actor, who Gielgud could... And, and, and this, school, this was set in a school. Gielgud loved the fact that the boys were running around all the time. He was going, oh, you know, and being, oh, go away, boy, and all this sort of thing. And they would tease him, and they would pull at his gown, and he was perfectly fine with that. But Emily Williams was kind of much more like, why are these boys too close? They're too close. And, and at one point, he had this line where, uh, which was just, someone somewhere is smoking. It's you, boy, isn't it? And and uh, <laughs> and Volker and me said, no, sir. And it turns out it's the schoolmaster. Actually, it's me, headmaster. Oh, oh very well. Anyway, um, he said, uh, someone somewhere is smoking. 
It's you, boy, isn't it? And Patrick said, well, maybe that was just a little too frightening, you know, rather than it's just um, like that. And there was a huge pause, and Eminem Williams drew himself up to his full height and said, oh, Patrick, I hope you're not telling me how to play comedy. And that, I mean, what can you do as a director after you've heard that? That's just the end of it, isn't it? And, you know, we do occasionally, and on film sets, you do occasionally hear stories of actors and, and stars who say that. Stars is an interesting one. I've done a few films where there have been, you know, big movie stars. Um, I, I did a movie... Uh, with John Travolta, for example, when he was at the absolute height of his post-pulp um, fiction renaissance, you know, where he'd mm. risen again. Mm. Um, and he was being paid 21 million for this movie. Uh, wow. the, the, the one million at the end of it was because Jim Carrey had been paid 20 million, which is the most anyone had ever been paid for a film. Right. So Travolta's uh, manager... Uh, decided he would get an extra million on top of that to prove the value of, of. So you know he was a really big star at this stage. But but also in the in in the film, which was called The Civil Action, there was like Bill Macy, William H Macy, John Lithgow, uh, Robert Duvall, Kathy Bates, um, James Gond James Gandolfini, Tony Shalhoub. It was it was an amazing cast. It was it was really fantastic. Um, and I was just like a pig in Chardonnay, um, uh, 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 surrounded by these. And, and, and we would sit and gossip. So, you know, with Kathy and Bill Macy and, and Bob Duval and uh, uh, Duval, as they call him, and, uh, and John Lithgow, as they say. We, we would sit around and, and sometimes... JT, as John Travolta would, would, was called, would, would come and sort of hang around with us like that. And, but most of the time he was in his trailer and looking utterly miserable. And I, I remember saying to, to Bob, Bob Duvall, I said, I, I, um, why do you think JT's so sort of miserable most of the time? You know, and he comes up and he looks at us rather hungrily like a dog who wants to be fed and then mooches off again. And, uh, and Bob Duvall said, why do you think you're in this movie, Stephen? And I said, well, um, I, I guess the producers and, and the director... Uh, wanted me to be in it. He said, yeah. He said, that's why I'm in it. All of us guys, we're in this movie because the director and the producer wanted us to be in it. JT's in it because the studio wanted him to be in it. It's a, He's a financial chip. He's not an actor. He sees us chatting and laughing because there's no pressure on us. If this movie tanks... No one's going to say, oh, that Robert Duvall, he can no longer act. But they might say, that JT can no longer hold a, you know, prop up a movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. And his, his stock goes down. Yeah. Wow. That's a really interesting point. It is an interesting yeah. point. That, and, and, yeah. and that's, you know, had the same experience to, to a film with Walter Matha, who's telling me about uh, the people he'd, he said, I, I never worked with a star who, who was happy, he said, you know. he And he worked with Elvis Presley and Cary Grant and, you know, Audrey Hepburn, you, you name it, you know. He, he worked with them and he said they were all miserable. Just a huge amount of pressure. A vast mm. amount which, of pressure. Yeah, which sort of slightly touches on, um, I guess, mental health within the, the, the industry. Um, and obviously you're a huge um, advocate and supporter of, of mental health charities and... and do you mind talking a little bit, Stephen, about that within the industry? Yeah, I think actors, of course, live 
raw lives emotionally than others in as much as they're often asked to play roles that might well be picking at their own scabs, as it were. I mean, you know, that, um, and sometimes you can't but believe that the particular skill or gift that makes someone a fine film actor in all ranges of uh, is almost a dangerous gift that 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 very few great film actors are likely to be normal <laughs> and so there's the star and we've talked about the pressures on them and then there's the great actor too and and and, and so often they have to go to places and inspect parts of their personality i mean there are people who you know they've got a scene where they have to weep so uncontrollably mm-hmm. or they have it's to lose hard to do that. So, yeah it's, it's painful and sometimes it's done so realistically that it frightens people on the set because you, you think my god what's this person accessed in themselves mm. so so you know there is obviously in that sense but then actors and uh, uh creatives are more likely to be open about things they've, they've traditionally been more open about their sexuality if it's been necessary and about their um and about their mental health but, you know, I've noticed that in, in the days since I've been open about my own mental health issues, that on film sets, and quite often it will be um, someone from a totally different department in the filming, you know, a grip or an electrician or something who might sidle up to me and go, oh, I, I really like that film you made about because I have this. And they'll talk about their mental health problems. And and, and you'll realise, of course, that, that, that it's much harder for them, really, because, you know, they're not in... I mean, they are in a creative job, you know, but but they they're not taught somehow to think of it. They're called technical rather than creative, mm-hmm. and 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 they they tend, uh, you know, to come from a different world and to to speak a different language or to have been brought up speaking a different language. And so it's it's very important to 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 remember that you know that that the intensity of, of the workspace that is the film unit is something that needs to be considered. And we're now aware of the dark history of um, sexual predation and uh, mm-hmm. bullying and, and unkindness and uh, all these, you know, different behaviours that, have, yeah. that mm. have plagued film sets because of the power play inside them. I was going to say, and there's, there's that, the, that sort of hierarchical and The hierarchical aspect. sense. Mm. It, it re- is it long reflected in Britain. It reflected the army and, you know, you had an officer class, which was the director and the some of the heads of department and the actors, and and you had the the warrant officers, as they're called in the army, i.e. the the ones, you know, the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, the equivalents of corporal and sergeant, who are the ADs, who actually, ADs, it's, it's, it's very yeah. revealing that on <laughs> British sets, they nearly always call actors, sir and madam. Yeah, we'll mm-hmm. be ready for you in, in 10 minutes, sir. Or they'll call the, the, the director, they'll call them Sarah or Madam. Um, yeah. And there is still that sense. Uh, and then, you know, the rest are the ordinary private soldiers. And that's been the structure in a film set for a long time. And, you know, there have been directors who've tried to uh, overcome that. And, and But the important thing now is to remember, yeah, this is not just the social equality side of it and, and the reduction of this idea of power over other people that, you know, that a director is allowed to insult people or lose his temper or 
or, or massage their shoulders without asking or any of those sort of things that that, that, that used to happen. That, and I think people now understand that. And, and also the intimacy issues in, in certain scenes and, and how important it is that everyone's at ease with that. And all of those things are looked at. But it's also true that, yeah, that people should feel just as there is a, usually a, a, on, on larger film sets, there's there's a, a nurse or someone or someone medically qualified to to deal with uh, accidents and things that might arise that that also you know at the at the earliest days of filming people are made to feel aware that if they if they feel they have a deep you know sort of problem that is affecting their work and their and their fulfillment and their and their sense of themselves that they should be free to be able to go to someone to talk about it do you think we can do more uh, on film sets and in the film industry about it you know do we have a therapist on set do you think that that is the way forward to help i you? think i think that's a, a possible way i mean i think one of the things you can do and that a, a director and producer together can can formulate because as you know in, in the early part of film filming there are a lot of planning meetings where the heads of department get together and one of the questions you can ask to all the different heads of department is um what, what do you think we should do to make this a really happy and and uh, uh you know cheerful set where everybody feels confident in their own roles and in mm. speaking out if they're if they're not uh, either on work practices or in just terms of uh, you know mental health and other such issues um, um and, and you can say you know what what people think well, do you think we should ask for a therapist to be available should we you know have a, a place for people to go and you know, I, 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 remember, I remember laughing when uh, my friend Hugh uh, told me that on the first day of shooting of Sense and Sensibility, Ang Lee had a little ceremony, a, um, a Shinto or Buddhist, I'm not sure which it was, but it was a sort of ceremony that involved a sort of beautiful copper bowl and smoke and uh, chanting and things like this. It was to bless the production and he wanted everyone to be around and hold hands for it like that. Mm. And, of course, you happened to be holding hands with the dolly, who, dolly grip who said, is this going to happen at the beginning of every day? He <laughs> <laughs> said, no, I think it's just for the first day. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, th that sort of thing, you know, can so easily be laughed at as pretentious, but actually it does, you know, it is a binding thing. It binds exactly. people together. Yeah. Because as yeah. we all know, the experience of being on a film set is an immensely team building feel you know it, it has this you know this closeness you can get the the speed with which you know running jokes and 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 uh, um, you know little catchphrases develop that that are just good for that movie and and so on and um and the more that's uh, encouraged i think and that the the more cheerful the 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 atmosphere the better and that also means there can come a time when the director can be confident to say now look everybody this scene it may seem very ordinary this scene but actually it's kind of the emotional heart of it so i'd really appreciate if everybody concentrates to their maximum and lets the actors try different things or whatever you know there might be that because some scenes really are you, you just come through the door and sit down and and they're just technical and someone's some do and and you know you can't expect everyone on set to have read the script you know as you know the opera 
the operator doesn't even <laughs> they usually they print you know they cut out bits of the call sheet and stuck it to the what used to be the magazine of the camera you know and uh, which has got the names of the actors on it <laughs> the old-fashioned ones uh, call call the actors mum and dad whoever whatever their age is the, the males are mum and the fe- uh, the males are dad and the females are mum yeah could you and, and they'll say mum could you just move slightly to the left and dad which is baffling <laughs> that sense of kind of family isn't it mm. that, you know and um, mm. which is which is kind of really it's really lovely yeah, it's, it's a, a very it's family. you know it can be a very stressful very pressurized be, situation because the clock is always ticking i mean yeah. the, the important yeah. thing to remember of course is unless you've got a, a very unusual film that's being shot all in one place or more or less in one place the chances are that where you're shooting that day is not available tomorrow mm. and uh, it yeah. might and if it's uh, daylight dependent the clock is ticking even more loudly in in everyone's heads so um yeah there is tension uh, uh which is not just to do with the emotion and the things and sometimes the you know complicated stunt uh actions have to be performed and things like that so it it it, it, it always goes better when everybody's on good terms with each other and always and having that little conversation and everyone feels included absolutely and having those little conversations at the start of every day this is what we want to do today because like you say you think everyone's read the script you think everyone knows it as well as you do and they don't and as soon as you get your head around that you go oh i need to tell people what scenes we're doing they just turn up and going sorry here the sides are doing what oh god i've got to light something i haven't got time to look at this which is incredible we're we're huge fans all of us as bright young things and it amazed me when i found out you hadn't directed again after this and you do mention it in matt and tory's brilliant book uh, uh, yes. Uh, yes yes full to the brim fizz and ginger um but it, it, it was something that was like oh that's really interesting because it seems like the way you're talking you love working with actors i do and i'd love to do it again i do think a film set is one of the happiest and most remarkable places to be in the mm-hmm. world that i've ever experienced i'm always thrilled to be there and i just love it i love you know, touching the light stands. <laughs> Don't and, touch know, that, Stephen. Just being there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know. Uh, I just love it. Um, I You're a born director. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I think the reason is time, to be honest, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I love writing so much and because I love acting and performing in different ways so much. Directing is, especially in Britain, as you <laughs> will know and you'll know, um, is is... A lot of it is pounding the pavements of Soho, having meetings, trying to raise the finance. Uh, every film is, a, as I used to call it in the days when there were such things, is a new checkbook. You know, In other words, you pay people out of this movie, AC number one, the accounts, you know. Whereas in America, you notice that the checks are Paramount Pictures Corporation. You know, that they have a continuity of financing. Every mil- movie is a new financial structure. It's, it's, it's a... Uh, and... and you know, there's this business of the people putting their money in last so they can take it out first and these kind of games people play with the... It's... it's, I was not put on this earth to be able to read a budget or a spreadsheet or a schedule (laughs) even. And, you know, I'm just hopeless at that side of it. But, you know, if you've got a great line producer and a great, you know, an experienced production team generally, then, you know, that they they look after those that side of things. And But you still get taken out to the meetings for months ahead of the film getting a, any kind of a green light and and so there's like three months of prep and three months you know of shooting and three months of post or 
some variation of that kind of time, which is the best part of a year. And then there's all the publicity and everything. So I'm not t suggesting I'll never make another movie again, but I, I guess if I did, I'd probably have to have an idea for it and think, I want to direct that. I, I've been offered some wonderful scripts and, and I've loved them and thought, gosh, that's good. But is it, you know, do I want to take a year out of my life to do that? Well, if you ever need a hand, we're, we're all here to help. So, <laughs> throw that away. Another evening, another evening war. Yeah. Oh, be, well, that's, know, that's a nice thought. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. I, a final bit of advice uh, then for actors and filmmakers that you've gleaned from your years uh, of, of making films, being in them, starring in them, um, and actually being an all-round legend. Golly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> usually actors deflect this by saying, you know, check your flies and don't bump into the furniture is the mm, best advice. Indeed, yes. um, and of course that's true. But I, I suppose the... Um, I like to quote the Oasis album when I arrive on a film set sometimes and say to both the AD and the director, what's the story, Morning Glory? So I need to know from the AD what the story is, i.e. the AD, she'll say, uh, or he'll say, well, we hope to do the, you know, 28A um, before lunch. We, we really want to get that done before lunch. Ideally, then, we'd be slightly on the move and go into the next days to do that. We should have done that by three, and you'll be cleared by four. So then that's the story of the shoot and, and what you're likely to do so you can get your head around that and feel, okay, how to conserve, conserve your energy or at least build up to the various moments. And then to the, to the director and the script supervisor, you're saying, what's the story, morning glory, meaning, you know, what am I... What is the story as far away... What happened before this scene? What happens after it? Obviously, you know from looking at the script, but you'll know by this time the director has got their own story in their head mm -hmm. as far as the cutting is concerned. So it's it's just being aware of the story. I mean, I'm not a method actor, and some method actors would say, well, the actor shouldn't know more than their character knows, but that's simply impossible. Even the most methody actor does, has read the script, so they know they're going to die tomorrow in their, their character, or they know that they're lying when they're saying, you know, that, that someone is lying when they say something to them. They know they've, you know, so, but it is important to remind yourself of what the director feels the story is doing, so, you know, um, and, uh, that's, so that's what I'd say. What's the story, Morning Glory? Amazing. Stephen Fry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you so Such much. Such a delight. And fizz and ginger to us all. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, good luck with your next project, Tori and Matt. I can't wait. You're wonderful oh, filmmakers man. yourselves. And yes. uh, I suppose I'd also say to someone um, uh, listening who, who wants to go on the production side and, in, in, and, and make films from that, from that point of view is... The purpose of making a film and making it a success is to be able to make another one. It's not to become famous. It's not to make a huge amount of money. You won't, that won't happen in filmmaking unless you, something extraordinary happens that you can't really plan for. But what you can plan for is to make the film good enough and liked enough and possibly just breaking even enough plus more so that you can make another one and then another and then another. That's what all filmmakers will tell to you, even if they're Steven Spielberg, it doesn't matter. That's what they want to do, is to be able to make their next film. That's the dream. Thank you so much. Amazing. Remember, you can go out there and make your film, you can act in them, you can star in them, you can learn from all of this, you can go make your TV and film, just as Stephen Fry has done. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty. Just send, send the, the elevator, elevator back, back down. down. Ping, ping. You take care. Have a wonderful day. All the best to you. Real pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Thank you so Love much, Stephen. Stephen. Take All the care. best. Bye-bye. Yeah.
If you enjoy the Filmmakers Podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.